0: Welcome everyone to POV Crypto, the only podcast that both Bitcoiners and Ethereans listen to. I'm David Hoffman, here with my buddy Christian. Christian, how you doing? Doing good, man. I am sweating. It is loud outside, so I had to close the windows, but it's
1: also like 80 degrees in San Francisco and I don't have AC. Shut up. Thank God, hey, I've had to open up my shirt, but we had to turn off the video, so Drew and David did not have to see me with my shirt all the way open <laughs> oh during the interview. But guys, we just finished an awesome talk with Drew Bansal of Unchained Capital. I swear, I mean, we're getting such awesome guests now, and uh, Druv is one of these people. He is just so knowledgeable. He has a ton of experience in both Bitcoin and Ethereum, as well as just securing crypto assets in general. David, what do you think of the of the conversation?
0: Yeah, if we were better at this, we would have uh, advertised this as a uh, a on chain uh, themed week coming up. We were just having a lot of on chain blockchain analytics content, and uh, Druv really just drives drives that theme uh, further. Druv is the creator of the HODL Waves analysis, which if you guys want to pull that up and look at look at the HODL Waves, uh, it'll probably be the first thing that comes up in, in Google. It's also available on Druv's Medium. Uh, really cool analysis of the timing of when uh, Bitcoins move and the uh, cross-referencing them with the price that they move at. Dhruv comes from a, a big data background, which just lays really well with uh, cryptocurrencies and blockchains, which just are literally a bunch of data. Uh, so so we go into that and then we also go into Unchained Capital, his startup uh, that uh, designs a cool custodianship mechanism to uh, enable trustless lending so if you have your bitcoins and you know because you're not on ethereum right so you don't have DeFi. you have to go to a centralized service to get your to get your interest rates (laughs) but uh that's what they provide but they do it in a way that uh is is a little bit more trustless with a with a multi-sig three-way uh key key pair Uh, and so he goes into into that and uh, just makes it makes the uh, episode just really easy to listen to along the way so thank you Drew.
1: Yeah, I mean, hey, he's bringing like Bitcoin banking services, Bitcoin financial services that stay true to the cryptocurrency ethos, um, and they're using multi-sig, and their newest product is not even really banking, but strictly just storage with multisig. and if you use it, you get two of three keys, and they kind of just facilitate in helping you. Um, have some redundancy in your multi-sig setup. So it's uh, a pretty cool product, and uh, Drew gets into all the details, so I won't uh, take away from his fire. But uh, if you are here in San Francisco, you can come meet me as well as Drew and the Unchained Capital team at Starfish Mission. They're going to be giving a demo of their multi-sig product, The Vault. Um, there, I think it's at 6 p.m. Uh, on the 29th, Monday, Starfish Mission. We'll show it at the end of the episode as well. But without further ado, um, you know, we got to get into our obligatory rate and review the show. Make sure to uh, follow us on Twitter at POV Crypto Pod.
0: And now we bring you Dhruv Bansal. All right, guys, I'm super
1: excited to bring you a very special guest. Dhruv Bansal, the chief science officer of Unchained Capital, is on POV Crypto. Drew, it's an honor to have you. I've listened to a bunch of your podcasts and read a bunch of your Medium posts in the past, uh, and this is really cool just uh, getting you on the show and getting you sharing about your experiences. Why don't you tell our audience a little bit more about yourself, about your company, and yeah, we can get into it.
2: Yeah, thank you, Christian, and thanks for having me, guys. Uh, My name's Drew Bansel. I am the uh, chief science officer and co-founder of Unchained Capital. We're a financial services company that's uh, trying to build products for long-term holders of cryptocurrency.
1: Hell yeah. I mean, I, I love that. And uh, yeah, let's just get right into it. Uh, what's what's your background and how did you get into this space?
2: Right. So I started out uh, my career as a physicist. Originally, I wanted to be a professor and like the jackets with the elbow patches, like that was what I, what I was into. Um, I live in Austin. I came down here to Austin, Texas in about 05 uh, to start my PhD uh, in physics. I was doing statistical physics. So like large numbers of things, let's put them together, let's see what their aggregate behavior is. And I was pursuing that field using a lot of data analysis. So downloading huge amounts of data from you know, social and physical data sets, trying to analyze them. Um, and it, I got really good at just data crunching. And through that experience, I wound up starting a company with some co-founders, other physicists and, and uh, a business co-founder. Um, on um, uh, kind of that data processing angle. At the time we were doing this, big data, cloud computing, DevOps, these were all new ideas that we were really good at, that in, in just with all the data we had dealt with, we'd become experts in these technologies. And so we wound up starting a company that just went out and sold a platform to help larger uh, companies do the same kind of work. Remember, the stuff was really new, and the tech was really hard to grasp for a lot of people. So we built big projects for you know, um, insurers, banks, manufacturers, helping them crutch you know, terabytes uh, of data from their um, infrastructures. And what was a great experience in a lot of ways, you know, I learned about startups, I learned about building a company, fundraising, uh, managing employees, like all these really important like, life skills. But I also learned a lot about distributed systems in the process of building that company and implementing all the projects that we sold. I got really good at NoSQL and distributed databases and so on. Um, and during the course of that project, in about 2011, I, was, I remember I was at a, um, like an open source conference somewhere in Portland. And I ran into a very curious character. Um, I, I'll never forget it, man. Uh, he was wearing a kilt. Um, And he was a mathematician and he was just at this conference and he was just talking about Bitcoin. And it was like super fascinating because I had never heard of Bitcoin um, up until that day. It was my first experience hearing about it. Um, And I wanted to just hang out with this guy for like the entire night. We went to drinks and just hung out and like I really just got the red pill from him, so to speak. Um, But sort of, it didn't quite work on me because I think what happened is I was, you know, good at distributed systems. I understood that the blockchain, the way that he described it was a distributed database. It was a really bad one in the sense that it didn't have high throughput and all these cool properties that databases like, you know, HBase or Elasticsearch or whatever I was working with that they had. Um, But it had some really unique other properties, as we all know. Um, So I was like, this is a really cool project, really cool solution. It's amazing that someone invented proof of work as a as a way to solve the double spend problem. Like, that's so cool. But at the same time, who cares? Like, who's Bitcoin for? Like, what problem is it solving? Like, this is a really sophisticated solution for a problem that no one actually has. That was my... Uh, seasoned analysis of it back in 2011. And of course, I was completely wrong, um, but also Bitcoin's price back then was like less than a buck. So it was easy to dismiss it. And I think what happened is over the next coming years, you know, my company grew. We wound up selling it in about 2013. Um, I made for the first time in my life a little bit of money that I could maybe afford to lose on something. Um, And right around then, Bitcoin, of course, went through that rally of 2013, right? So the price was like, it was back in the news a little bit, and the price was in like the hundreds of dollars, right? Way higher than when I'd last heard about it. And that shocked me because I was like, look, I I got how this thing worked, but I just thought it was a scam or I thought it was pointless. Like, How could it possibly in two years have grown by a hundredfold in market cap or whatever in price? um that really threw me for a loop you know and i had to i had to question a lot of my assumptions and thoughts around what is bitcoin who is it for and that started me around this you know, the rabbit hole right that started up for me i bought some bitcoin i started to understand that there hey there's a lot of questions around monetary policy that i had never considered and bitcoin got me to ask those questions for the first time um, and in answering them for myself i became more and more enraptured with kind of the opportunities that bitcoin and blockchains were creating like you know, on the whole, and of course, like a lot of people, I went through the whole like, well, it's not Bitcoin, it's blockchains, and um, wait a minute, what about applying blockchains to all these other things? I, I went through all like the stages of understanding Bitcoin and blockchains and so on, uh, and eventually, Joe and I, my co-founder from my last company, we decided that look, we got we want to work it together again, we want to do another startup, um, and it's going to have to be in Bitcoin, man, because we're basically obsessed with it. I think there was this weekend where we had told ourselves, OK, on Monday, let's meet and we're gonna, I'm going to come with all this analysis I did on the construction industry and you're going to do your analysis on the food industry and then we'll start ideating on like what, what kind of businesses we want to start, maybe in these spaces. And then Monday arrived and we had both spent the weekend reading about Bitcoin. And it was just kind of like, look, if this is who we are becoming, let's just admit it and let's start a Bitcoin company and figure out like what that even means. Um, but of course, then the question became, well, what is our Bitcoin company going to do? Like, it's already about 2015, 2016 when we're having this conversation. So like Coinbase exists, exchanges exist, wallets exist. A, a lot of services are being built out and we started to ask ourselves what's missing. Um, and I think, you know, because of my background and because of our history uh, as data people, like building these big you know, data platforms, one of the first things we did is we turned to the data. And it's one of the things that always drew me to the blockchain, even when I had dismissed it in 2011, was it's really cool because it writes down everything. You have this in perpetuity, like append only data set that you're building uh, globally. And I was like, that's amazing. Why don't I just go look at that? Let's, Let's analyze that thing and see what it tells us about Bitcoin as an ecosystem. And so in about 2016, we produced the very first internal version of what we later released in 2018 as our HODL waves chart, which might be fun to talk about with you guys. But in 2016, we made it for the first time and, you know, we can get into the details more, but this chart basically shows how Bitcoin moves around historically over time. And um, again, just from looking at the blockchain data and what we established in 2016 for ourselves was that a huge amount of Bitcoin like doesn't actually move. Like, it's just sitting there in someone's address, wallet, whatever. Um, and that wasn't a surprise on some level because that's what Joe and I did with our Bitcoin. Like, we didn't use it for anything. We weren't buying stuff with it. It was just sitting around. It was a speculative investment. And we kind of suspected that a lot of people behave the same way with their Bitcoin. And to see it in the data set, that really confirmed um, our suspicions. In 2016, about 60% of Bitcoin in existence was had been static, sitting around for more than 12 months. So. You know, this, this revolutionary digital currency that's programmable and it's going to change the surface of finance for the whole planet. Uh, actually, it's just digital mattress money. That's what it kind of looked like to us. And so we realized, hey, this is an interesting opportunity. Um, clearly, these folks who have this Bitcoin, like Joe and I, they believe in it. They're holding it long term. It's a little bit speculative, but there's also an element of really believing in the ecosystem and wanting it to grow. They're clearly not selling their Bitcoin. Um, they don't want to trade it. What else could they do with it? And we immediately started to think about financial services and could they borrow against it? Could they? um, What about derivatives, options, ways to protect it? Um, Even things like tax advice, these were all elements that didn't feel like they were very well built out in the Bitcoin ecosystem. And truthfully, if Bitcoin is going to become a global reserve currency, it needs these kinds of degrees of freedom for its holders. And so that's really in 2016 towards the end, that's really where we started to focus and think about, well, okay, what is the first Bitcoin financial service that we should build? And it came to us that it was lending, that through conversations with customers, doing a bit of due diligence, we understood that a lot of folks who had Bitcoin had significant amounts of it and had really no ability to leverage that, even if they wanted to, and they would be willing to pay for that service. Uh, furthermore, lending is uh, the, the regulations around lending, at least by 2016. We're actually pretty cut and dry in terms of how, from a legal perspective, someone could actually go out and give a collateralized loan against Bitcoin, let's say. Um, So we understood that, it was a clear path, and we wound up launching uh, probably the first uh, collateralized loan product in cryptocurrency, at least in the United States, uh, in 2017. So in June of 2017, we gave our first loans um, against Bitcoin as a form of collateral, and we've just been growing since then.
0: That is a pretty crazy story, and I really like how your intersection with your background of, of big data uh kind of became was made relevant and with it in a kind of a creative way and i definitely have heard of the whole HODL waves and i, I do really want to to get into that um but before we do i kind of want to ask has any of your data ever indicated to how much uh, bitcoin is actually lost
2: yeah yeah that's that's so funny because the the again the huddle waves chart it really just tries to partition if you want or like color in Bitcoin at a given moment by how old it is. Not when it was mined, but how old it is since its last transaction. And so Bitcoin that's lost is just going to get older and older and older in this analysis. And what we saw in 2016, which is, by the way, only about seven years after Bitcoin was launched, right? Um, In 2016, Um, a huge amount of Bitcoin was sitting in these oldest age buckets, like maybe 10 or 20 percent of Bitcoin was sitting there at like older than five years since it last moved. Um, What's been interesting is over time, it's been another three, four years since that time. And we have seen a lot of Bitcoin stay in that category. There are Bitcoin that are like eight or nine years old at this point. Um, In our view, that's a strong indicator that that Bitcoin is probably lost. We published a second article Um, in this kind of data analysis of Bitcoin kind of theme, which actually address this issue pretty directly. Like, can you look at this HODL waves kind of approach and look at how much Bitcoin data is, or how much Bitcoin is actually lost? And you can kind of get close, you can estimate it. Um, It looks to me like a conservative estimate would be like 30%, um, a more liberal estimate might be like 20%. And that includes um, the coins that are held, or are believed to be held at least by Satoshi. Um, And I kind of consider those coins not quite lost, maybe out of out of the picture right now. It's it's a really interesting philosophical point to, to discuss, uh, or maybe sociological point to discuss. You know, is Satoshi even real anymore? Is is he or she out there? Are they ever going to move those coins? So it's hard to call them totally lost, but um, I, I lumped them into that category. And what's interesting about the approach that we took to answer this question? So you know, net net, about twenty to thirty percent lost. Is it was a really rough, coarse grained approach. The, the way that we did this analysis, we don't have a lot of information about individual addresses or individual users. We're just looking at aggregates across the blockchain. Um, and what was nice is our approach, which is has has very few assumptions and is really coarse-grained, came to a really similar number as a much more sophisticated, fine-grained approach with a few more assumptions that was put out by chain analysis. So if you go look at some of their reports, they have all this awesome fine-grained data on like which addresses belong to exchanges and, and all this kind of stuff, and they've been you know, for better or worse, doing a lot of tracking in an effort to de-anonymize and get a little bit more insight about who are the people behind this Bitcoin. And that gives them a much, um, I think, more concrete ability to talk about Bitcoin that they believe to be lost. But their number comes out pretty similar to ours. So I think it's really hard to know. Over time, it'll become more and more clear. Like in, in 50 years, if there is a subset of Bitcoin that is 49 years old, it's probably lost. Um, But I think today, like we're seeing a decoupling or we're seeing whatever Bitcoin is left right now is still being lost, but at a a smaller rate. There is still Bitcoin being lost, I believe, today, but the rate is much smaller. The chief reason for that ultimately is just price. Most Bitcoin was probably lost, in our view, in the early days when it didn't matter that you had, you know, 10,000 Bitcoin on a hard drive because it wasn't worth a whole lot. Um, At some point, the price got high enough where people stopped behaving that cavalierly. And I think the rate at which Bitcoin wound up becoming lost decreased significantly because of that.
1: On-chain analytics are things that, in that kind of study of how the blockchain works, is something that is expanding greatly today. And that is happening on both you know, the light side of the force, a lot of the stuff that you're doing and trying to understand how the blockchain is working. A lot of traders are also doing this to try to find an edge uh, on like blockchain fundamentals. But also kind of on the dark side with... You know these chain analysis companies that are really kind of aligning themselves with KYC laws and all that kind of stuff, um, and trying to de-anonymize the blockchain. Um, I guess you know where do you see this evolution, and where you know I guess you know how do you feel about chain analysis as well as you know all of what's happening here?
2: Uh, Man, it is a loaded question. You already kind of painted them on the on the dark side of this whole uh, question. So so let me let me try and be nuanced. I think. Given my background in you know data science and data analytics and building large-scale data solutions, Joe and I definitely considered building a company like Chain Analysis. It was clear to us, even in 2016, that you know, if this thing grows, the anonymity that it confers on its user base is going to be a threat or a concern for a lot of you know government governments, agencies, even just businesses. Um, and that's 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 well understood. I think sometimes when we paint this question in too much of a light side, dark side, binary kind of picture, we forget that there's really bad shit that has gone down because of Bitcoin. There have been crimes that Bitcoin has enabled. There's been greater. Um, there's been evil things that it has allowed to happen. Now, I won't pretend that those evil things only exist because of Bitcoin. Criminals are going to engage in criminal behavior no matter how they get paid or what they what they what they do. Um, but those things have happened, and it is important to recognize that and, and be wary. Um, I can talk a little bit about how my own company handles these issues when we when we give financial services and loans and stuff. Um, so I do think there is some value in understanding or having some ability to say no to customers. Um, but I don't necessarily think that long term, it's going to be reasonable to pull that 100% from the, from the chain itself. I think... That conversation is going to be one between people. And you're going to say, well, who are you? I need to know because I don't want to work with someone who might be a criminal. And you're going to volunteer that information. And if you don't want to, you won't use that product. I think today, because of how unsophisticated most users are, how unsophisticated most exchanges, wallet software, is, it is far easier to actually track people um, than it will be in the future. Um, And as a result, you have companies going out there and just Doing a bunch of data analytics and, and then giving you scores on addresses or, or using whitelists and blacklists and, and stuff like this. Again, it's totally reasonable that that's happening now. I understand why people are building that. The reason Joe and I didn't build it though is because we felt it was fundamentally, one, a little bit antithetical to the spirit of the industry. That as much as I'm saying, yes, it's important to know your customers and you don't want to deal with criminals, at the same time, anonymity is one of the chief virtues of this thing that we've built. And actively taking it away and de-anonymizing, while, while that's valuable to some parts of the ecosystem, it can be damaging to others. And so that was one issue that we, that we realized very early on and, and made us not want to go down that path. We wanted to continue to let people preserve their anonymity as compared to helping to remove it. But the second reason, and I think this is really speaks to history and kind of underscores how this issue will resolve itself in, in the fullness of time, is that again, the blockchain today is so early that most of us, when we transact with Bitcoin, are still transacting. Or, and this applies to any other blockchain as well, to ETH and anything else. We're typically interacting directly on that blockchain. right? Then when we do trades, um, whether they're mediated by us directly or whether they're happening through an exchange, they get settled on that blockchain pretty directly, pretty quickly. When we transfer funds to each other, it's happening on the blockchain. Um, and that's, again, because we are in an early days with low fees. If the lightning network or similar second layer networks in other blockchains, if those really start to ascend and become ubiquitous and become the kind of thing that is everyone is just using, I think it hugely changes the calculus around privacy. Just as an example, if a Bitcoin transaction today represents two people transacting, it's a lot easier to de-anonymize it by linking it to other things. If conversely, it represents a, I like to use Nick Carter's phrase here, if it represents a shipping container of Bitcoin that's moving around, that actually is the aggregate of 10 or 100,000 transactions on the Lightning Network, it's a lot more difficult to try to piece out, well, who did that? And I think that separation from... I, I as a user am engaging in a transaction right now versus the settlement of right here on the blockchain it got written that this address sent this to that that's getting separated because of this second layer like we know going back to bitcoin and blockchains being a bad database they're they're a bad database right um, if we view them as a piece of technology that's job is to hold data it's really bad at doing it because it makes all these trade offs that make that part harder. But what you get is all these amazing you know, censorship resistance, robustness, all these great qualities that we love about Bitcoin and blockchains. Um, but as a result, when over time, when, like, when we need it to scale, and we don't want just 7 to 10 transactions per second, but we want thousands, we can't use the same technology. We've got to invent separate layers. And both Bitcoin and Ethereum are doing this. And, and it's because it's the right pathway. You have to do it this way if you want it to really scale. But the nice upside is by doing that, we're divorcing transactions at that second layer from transactions at the first layer. And crucially, transactions at the second layer are not public. They're not written down in a perpetual ledger for everyone to analyze years later. Only transactions at the first layer get written down in that way. And that, that, that separation, that fissure between the settlement layer and the transactional layer is going to be a huge boon for privacy. I think it's going to make it much more challenging for companies such as Chain Analysis or others to continue to offer the individual level detail that they're currently trying to offer with all transactions happening on the base chain.
0: Yeah, so let's let's turn to Ethereum and talking about um, big data on Ethereum. Uh, do you, are you aware of much uh, demand for big data analysis on Ethereum? Because it, it would seem to me as there is a lot more richness in the data that Ethereum can provide, uh, specifically because uh, not not now, but in the future, when there is sharding and uh, proof of stake, or mainly sharding, there's a lot more capacity for on-chain transactions. Uh, and so it... it incentivizes on-chain transactions in a way that Lightning Network incentivizes off-chain transactions. And so in theory, I would imagine that there's going to be a lot more data available on Ethereum, not just because of the extra capacity on the main chain, but also because there's all these extra tokens that can provide uh, some sort of, of market analysis. Have you guys like started to delve
2: in, into that or, or are other people interested in that kind of data? So a couple points in, in reaction. I, I totally agree with you. I, I think that Ethereum, over time, if, it, if it's successful in, 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 in these ambitions, could incentivize a lot more on-chain data and be able to handle it, perhaps. Like, definitely true, and that changes some of what I was saying um, previously. Um, also, going just that's the future, but thinking about the now, I, I have demand to analyze Ethereum data. I am curious about what is in there. Um, practically, I will say that it is definitely more challenging even today to do the equivalent kinds of analysis we've done for Bitcoin because Ethereum is, by design, a much more complicated and richer um, engine in in many ways. Uh, In Bitcoin, a lot of our analysis that we've done previously just comes from looking at data on disk, the block files. If it's not in those block files, we really weren't analyzing it. Now, there is more in Bitcoin beyond that. There's the mempool. There's the node and network that you could look at as the lightning network grows. People are analyzing its connectivity quite a bit. There's a lot to look at other than what's on the blockchain. But the blockchain is pretty much all that we have looked at. And it has so much of the story in Ethereum. That's similarly true today, but it is not the case, for example, that everything I would want to analyze is pretty much sitting there on disk. Ethereum has, like, the the best way to analyze Ethereum, in my view, is to replay the full chain and to extract from every transaction, especially the internal transactions. Those of you who are developers might understand the difference between those. It's really important to replay everything from the Genesis block and then just record all of those separately. It's not you know, impossible or, 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 that much, or that much more difficult. It's just a little bit more work. Now, unfortunately, I have yet to find a really great library that does that for me, and I haven't run done that work myself. I would say if there's a listener out there that is familiar with a library that I could point at, my parity node, and it would just give me back everything that I'm looking for in a nice structured way in a database or something that I can analyze, that would be awesome. There is a tool out there called BlockSci, S-C-I, S-C-I that I think is more and more becoming like the tool to use for blockchain based analyses. But it's definitely much more strongly coupled to Bitcoin it feels today than to Ethereum. Though again, there's no reason why we couldn't write adapters to get Ethereum data into BlockSci or or other tools. Um, So net net, I'm less of an expert in the Ethereum data analysis side than the Bitcoin data side, mostly because it's more complex to do. um, And I just did Bitcoin first. And there's a little bit more tooling for Bitcoin, mostly because it's older. and I would, love, I would love to see someone redo the kinds of analyses we've done or, or other new ones on Ethereum. In particular, though, there are a couple interesting quirks that just semantically make it uh, uh, challenging to kind of compare apples for apples. The biggest one being that Bitcoin, of course, uses a UTXO based model for accounting of balances and addresses, but Ethereum uses the quote unquote account model. Um, And the difference there is is a little bit technical. It's mostly around in Ethereum. It works probably how you might guess it works, where when you have an address, it has a balance. It's just kind of like a bucket. And all the Ethereum is in that bucket. And when you take it out, it just comes out. Um, In in Bitcoin, it's more atomic, where you have an address. And as I fund that address and I I do transactions that are putting Bitcoin into that address, each separate transaction that I did is kind of its own little bag of Bitcoin sitting at that address known as a UTXO an unspent transaction output. That's that's what it stands for. And in particular, those UTXOs have their own dates. And so what's really cool is in Bitcoin, you can go back and you can say, well, this address has 10 Bitcoin in it. One of them is from this date, two of them are from this date, three of them are from this, so on. In Ethereum, you can say that, well, we have these transactions that deposited Ethereum from these prior dates, but it's not really possible to say of the subset of coins in that address, which ones came from which transaction. So in particular, just to make it concrete, if I have an address and I do two deposits in both in Bitcoin and Ethereum, and the first one I put in a hundred Bitcoin, excuse me, in the, if the first one I put in 20 Bitcoin and the second one I put in 10 Bitcoin and I withdraw five Bitcoin, it's very clear which input it came from because I explicitly have to say that when I draft the transaction. Whereas in Ethereum, if I do two deposits, I put in 20 and 10 and I withdraw five, it's not really a well-defined question like which of the deposits are you withdrawing from when you withdraw the five. It's coming from both or neither. It's just a shared pool. And that makes it a little bit more challenging to do analyses where you're talking about the average age of coins in given addresses. So just you know to summarize. I think Ethereum could have a lot more on-chain data than Bitcoin over time if their if their ambitions are realized. And that is super interesting because it makes it, it's richer to analyze that way. But second, today, at least what I, when I look out there, the state of the art in Bitcoin analysis is further along than Ethereum, one, because of age, two, because of simplicity. And three, I remain enthusiastic and excited for someone to change that situation and contribute some nice code that makes it just as easy in Ethereum and frankly, other blockchains as well. Like there's so many more out there and I would love to see like massive cross chain kind of comparisons um, using approaches like these.
0: Dhruv, are you familiar with uh, Etherscan? Yeah, of course. Yeah. So what about Etherscan uh, doesn't provide you the data that you're looking for for on-chain Ethereum analysis?
2: Oh, and so Etherscan is a great example, by the way, of a company that has done exactly what I am asking for. They literally replay, or as, as transactions arrive in their infrastructure, they replay those, they, they extract everything they can about those transactions and get them into normal databases so that we can visualize them as users. And I think you're right. It pretty much does give everything you absolutely need. The difference is really scale and accessibility. Just from a practical perspective, these blockchains are huge. I mean, Bitcoins is several hundred gigabytes, Ethereum's is getting close to a terabyte if you include like everything, which you should if you're doing an analysis like this. Um, it's challenging to sit here on your laptop and and poke at etherscan across all that huge amount of data now i'm not now maybe you know something i don't but i don't know that etherscan allows you to just download their historical dump of everything that they've ever pulled out of the blockchain. I don't think that they do. Is that true?
0: No, you do have to get more niche in what you want to discover. And so you have to be looking for within a particular band of parameters that they are already offering.
2: So from that perspective, like if you have a question about a given address or a subset of addresses and a bunch of small transactions, Etherscan solves your problem 100%. They have a great API, which I've used. You can just pull down what you need or you can just look on the internet on on, on 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 a web browser. But when you want to do these kinds of larger scale analyses, you want all that data in one place on a server or on a cluster of servers, and you want to be running through it right there locally. And that's the difference. You essentially want, what would be awesome is if Etherscan somehow, maybe this is a product they could consider. Can I specify a query in some language? I'll pass it to you, Etherscan. You run it on your infrastructure and your copy of the data, and you give me back the answer, and I'll pay you an ETH for that privilege. Like, that would be a cool product. I would pay for that.
1: It's interesting to get your perspective just because I never get into this kind of stuff. And, you know, with that being said, you're not the only person that's come on this podcast and talked about on-chain analysis and um, really kind of like, figuring out what's happening strictly from on-chain data and I'm curious you know where do you like what do you see as the implications of this kind of analysis like I know when Nick Carter has talked about it's going to tell us more about human behavior than ever before like what do you you know what what's your your take on uh, the implications that this could uh, lead to
2: I mean on some level I think my view is it it longer term it looks a bit more like climate science than it does like you know I don't know spying on citizens or something like that if, if, if you appreciate that like when we look at I don't want to get into the politics of climate science that's not at all the point here but when when you look at how we analyze climate and we try to make assertions about it it's a massive system with huge amounts of data and so many interconnected aspects it involves energy but also involves human incentive and it's really difficult and this is why climate science I think it you know can be portrayed as controversial at least, is that it can be difficult to go from that really top level picture with all this huge amount of data to really specific concrete statements or recommendations or normative claims right, about what should be done or what has been done. And I think similarly, you know, today I think things are still nascent and small and um, we're maybe even able to go from, we, we can even in certain cases really de-anonymize people. I think over time as that data set gets larger and larger and, and maybe, um, you know, If Ethereum really succeeds and we get even more on-chain data, this only exacerbates the issue. But if there's that much information, it, it just may be challenging to 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 do that, to do it that way, right? That like, it might be difficult to actually say very precise statements, but it might be possible to make very broad statements, like, hey, the temperature has been going up, or the number of transactions has been going up, or whatever we want to think about it. And what's cool about about that is, I think there is a lot of value in being able to talk about systems at the largest levels. Just because we can't go from these top levels all the way down to the nitty-gritty and individual level, it's not, that's not necessarily a weakness. That it's interesting to be able to talk about the system um, uh, macroscopically. I, I'm not an economist, I'm not an expert in macroeconomics by any means, but I recognize that good data in economics is really hard to get because like there's no system for collecting it. It's voluntarily reported, it's sampled from a few individuals or companies, it's estimated, things like inflation baskets and so on. Um, this is an approach that could give us way better data at that macro scale. And maybe econ- economics doesn't have to be quote unquote such a dismal science any longer because we have a much, much better source of data. I often think that revolutions in science sometimes happen because of brilliant insights, but often they happen because of a new technology that gives us better data. Uh, The telescope, the microscope, the computer, these are all technologies which give us better information and that inform our theories of the world. So in some way, the blockchain might be like a new system for us to analyze, but it might also be a new measurement tool to help us measure ourselves at the aggregate level of all human um, behavior, which that is really cool to me. How to turn that into specifics? i'm not sure
1: gotcha so i actually want to turn this conversation a little bit back to unchained capital I have been personally playing around with your new product it's a multi-sig solution uh, that you've branded as the vault it's super easy to use uh, you just essentially connect to two different signing devices um, and it just like allows you to click who is signing and you know it enables you to have super easy UX around setting up a multi-sig which I think is you know a huge thing and a huge improvement um, in cryptocurrency over fiat, and other systems is being able to have like these kind of multi-sig and trust-minimized security and storage methods. Uh, Would love it if you could jump into this new product and tell our our audience about it.
2: Yeah, I'd love to. Um, A little bit, it starts out historically when we built our loan business. You know, just to get into the details of that product for just a brief second, it's pretty simple um, business, right? Like you have Bitcoin, you want dollars, you could just sell the Bitcoin. That's an easy way to do it. But if you do, you're obviously giving up any future gains. You're having some tax consequences, et cetera. And so instead, you can collateralize your Bitcoin somehow and you'll get cash. You haven't lost your Bitcoin and you pay an interest payment monthly or whatever um, in order to be able to, to, to pay for that privilege. So that's the, the core idea of the loan product. But if you think about it, what, what, what onus it puts on us as the loan originator and servicer is we had better not lose your Bitcoin, man. It's like the... It's like the holy responsibility we take on in that situation. Like if, 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 if you hadn't want, if you hadn't cared about your Bitcoin so much, you would have just sold it. By, by collateralizing it, you're making the claim that this matters a lot more to me than its market value today, right? And so when we started the loan business, the, the, the number one question we were concerned with was custody. Like how will we keep this stuff safe for our borrowers? And we, we gave our first loans in June of 2017 and by that point, I had already moved my personal Bitcoin off of the exchanges. I originally used Coinbase, which, you know, people love to hate on sometimes, but they've done such a great job making it easy and accessible for new waves of adopters, including myself way back in 2013. And so, but by 2017, I already moved everything off of Coinbase. I didn't, I didn't like the consolidated risk that that put upon me. I didn't like not having control of my keys, et cetera, et cetera. So when we built the loan business in 2017, it was like, well, we certainly can't take their funds and put them on Coinbase. Like that would be the easiest way to do this. Like just sign up for Genesis or a Gemini account or a Coinbase account and uh, they deposit into some address we, that on, that's directly on Coinbase. It just gets all pooled into one massive pile of, of borrower collateral and that's how we run our business. Um, that seemed terrible. That seemed like so unfair and unsafe. Why would I treat my customers Bitcoin differently than I treat my own? Like, that made me feel uncomfortable. And so instead, what we decided is, well, we have to do something that's different than that. It cannot be a delegated kind of custodial solution. We, can't, we, we, we have to be able to know that this stuff is safe. Um, and then also, secondarily, as a loan originator, um, our protection, if, we, if, if you borrow with us and, let's say, you don't make a margin call or you stop making interest payments, um, how do we cover our risk in the, in the funds that we gave you? We've got to be able to liquidate the collateral that you gave us. And another worry was, well, what if Coinbase or Gemini or some delegated custodian that we were working with prevented us from doing that? Now that puts us at risk. That puts our lending capital providers at risk in this chain of of, of bad events. And so the solution to all of it was just don't don't do that. Like, let's make sure Unchained has a lot of knowledge and control over what's happening in the custody process. Um, And furthermore, so we decided to do it in-house. We decided to self-custody. And furthermore, because we're a small company... Um, We wanted to make sure that we were able to do it in the most secure possible way given our constraints and for us that meant multi-signature and especially cold storage. Unlike an exchange where your expectation as a user is that you're constantly trading in and out and it should be fast, um, an exchange like that they need to build a hot wallet because they have to deal with your expectations around turnaround time. In a business like ours in this financial services vertical, if you borrow from us and you're taking out let's say a two-year loan which is pretty typical for our customers, We don't really need to move your Bitcoin or your Ethereum. I keep saying Bitcoin, but we lend against Bitcoin and Ethereum. We don't need to move your cryptocurrency for two years. There's no reason for us, therefore, to expose it ever to the risk of being in any kind of a hot wallet. It should always be in something multi-signature, cold storage, uh, super safe. The upside for you on that, like those are security concerns. But the upside for our borrowers is that it automatically creates a lot of transparency that we when you get an address from us during the loan origination process and you fund that address and you put your bitcoin collateral or your ether into that address it's there until your loan is closed at any time you can go to any block explorer you want ether scan whatever and look at that address and you'll see the funds there they don't get rehypothecated they just sit there serving as collateral so it the security um, decisions created a lot of transparency benefits the way that we architected our system So all of that has been true in our company since day one. We we have never had a hot wallet. We have never put customer funds in anything other than multi-signature cold storage. What's different and has been changing over the last six months is when we started, we held all the keys to that cold storage. So it was multi-signature, two out of three, but Unchained held all three keys. And so as a borrower, you were put in this position of like, well, okay, I get a lot of transparency. I can see the funds in that address, but I have no control, right? Unchained has all the control here. Um, What we changed in November of 2018, so about six months ago, we launched what we call the Multi-Institution Custody Model, and that is designed, uh, it's it's still a two out of three multi-signature cold storage solution, but now the customer has one key, Unchained has a second key, and we actually work with a third-party independent key agent um, who has the third key. So now there's no individual entity or company that has all the keys or even a sufficient number of keys to move any of this collateral. So inherently, moving it has to involve communication and coordination, i.e. collaboration, between multiple parties. We think that massively increases security for everybody, ourselves included, but most importantly, the borrower, by having a key, has a certain amount of control over the address. They can't singularly move it on their own, of course, because then it wouldn't serve as a very effective form of collateral, but they can collaborate with our third party and get their funds back if we were to ever disappear. So that was really important for us to like make that first step to open up and start distributing the, um, the keys within the quorums that we're building for our, for our loans. And the natural extension of that for us was the product we launched in March, which is there's no loan aspect to it. There's no dollars really involved. It's just a vault that you use the same two out of three multi-signature cold storage technology, except now you as the depositor, the owner of this vault, you get to have two out of the three keys and Unchained will keep the third. Um, And that's a really interesting structure because you're still sovereign. You have two out of the three necessary required keys. You can move your funds at any time without any collaboration from Unchained, and we can't even stop you. If you wanted to use your keys, your Trezor, which and I should say this concretely, keys here, of course, I mean hardware wallets, because we want to continue to support cold storage and cold storage only here. So if you have a Trezor and Ledger, if you could even use one of each. Um, you sign up, you build a vault, I um, think, Christian, as you did, and you're still in control. Even if our application is not around, we've released open source code, you can use Electrum, there's all these tools that you can use to use those keys to get your funds back. But crucially, if you lose one of those keys or it becomes inaccessible to you somehow, then Unchained can serve as a trusted cosigner. We can never do anything without your your permission or collaboration since we only have one out of the three keys. But if you lose one of your keys, we'll countersign with you and the other key that you still have in order to rescue your funds and put them into a new vault. That's a super cool ability. Um, And we call it collaborative custody. You're choosing to collaborate with us in order to protect your vaults. And soon, in about the next month or so, we'll be releasing an iteration on this product where you'll actually be able to work with other Unchained Capital users. So example, like you guys could work together, for example, and have a vault for the podcast or whatever that each of you has a key to. A husband and wife could build a joint account where they each have accounts on Unchained, they each have their own independent hardware wallet, and they collectively manage the funds for their family. Or businesses could use this for treasury management. Um, these ideas aren't like totally new. We didn't obviously originate these concepts, but what we think we've contributed is a super, super easy to use UI and UX for wrangling all these humans, signers, hardware wallets, transactions, like getting the communication right amongst all of that together, as well as going beyond just multi-sig. Multi-sig is software. Um, collaborative custody is software plus services and security. So in addition to just letting you do the multi-sig, we're working with you. If you have questions, if you need support, we'll work with you to make sure that they're resolved. When you need a countersign from us, we're going to make sure to verify that you really are you. And uh, that's an important step that we take to guard your security so that we can't be spoofed into signing a transaction on your behalf. Um, And so you can see it's really just an evolution of where we started. We've always had a huge focus on security and custody and technology at our company. We have an awesome engineering team. And that grew that started with a loan product. It grew into the multi institution loan product in which borrowers get to have keys. And now finally, it's manifested itself as a direct custody solution. So without if you don't need a loan, you can still protect your Bitcoin better by using something like this. And I think going forward, you'll see us again, use the same approach by building collaborative custodial structures between different parties in order to enable new kinds of financial instruments, or I should say rather old financial instruments such as loans, fixed income, et cetera, but implemented in this new universe. So Drew,
0: that was just a, a great transition from, from all your different products or progression I should say. But I want to go back to the beginning and talk about the three key model, where you have an Mm -hmm. independent uh, key manager. Is that what you called it? Yeah, Um,
2: yeah, we call them an independent key agent.
0: Key agent, yeah. So that kind of, to to me, that kind of raises a, a game theory flag, where this independent key agent can kind of have the power to collaborate with either party, whichever one is willing to. Do uh, makes any sort of malicious, malicious collaboration that goes against the contracts of, of the other party, right? And so the 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 key agent can collaborate with all of your clients and and release funds and do a do a under the table deal where they like get get some of their Bitcoin or get some of the the loan that you've originated to them, uh, and you know have that under the table. Uh, so how how do you manage the the kind of the the malicious um, the malicious game theory behind uh, preventing that attack?
2: No, it's a totally fair question. I think a big part of that is, you know, choose your dancing partners carefully, all right? Like this company, I'll talk a little bit about them. They're they're called Citadel SPV. They're a firm out of New York City. Um, They've had a long history of doing things like this, where they serve as an independent board member, they serve as an ombudsman, they serve um, as you know executives in some kind of joint venture between different companies. They're used to, in fact, specialized in being in this position of I'm in the middle between two folks, and I have to either make decisions or I have responsibilities, and so on. It was really interesting. And one of the reasons we really wanted to work with them is they actually approached us. For a long time, we've been looking for, hey, what we need is a really trustworthy, um, you know, third party that can follow rules and can do a little bit of arbitration and like really act as an independent check for both ourselves and our borrowers. And we had had trouble finding that company. And then Citadel just came to us and said, hey, look, we think that the kinds of services we've been providing for years are exactly what cryptocurrency requires, but we're not technologists. We're looking to partner with someone that can put us into this role so that we can do what we always have been doing, but in this new space, right? They're obviously pretty excited about where they see crypto going. Um, And so from that perspective, they were just a great fit, Um, and we've worked with them really closely. We've built uh, standard operating procedures for how they're supposed to cooperate with us, how they're supposed to collaborate with customers, what are their obligations, when a customer says this, this is what you have to do next, here's how you check with us. Um, If we're not available, here are the steps you will follow. Um, And to be clear, the rules here are a little bit different around vaults and around loans. That in particular, if we if it's your vault and you show up and you say, "Look, Unchained's not responding. They're not letting me get this out. Like I have one key. I want you to use your other key and and do it. They'll work with you to do that. They'll independently work to resolve that problem with you. For loans, it's a little bit less um, automatic." You can imagine exactly the question that you raised. We wouldn't want a customer to go and make a false representation to Citadel saying, hey, wait a minute. They, like, they, My loan is like I t- totally paid it back, but they're not giving it back. Can you please get me my funds back? In that situation, Citadel is going to reach out to us directly. They're going to talk to us what's going on with this customer, tell us what to do, you, like what, like, show us the history of all this, and we'll be working with them. Ultimately, they're pretty informed about all the same information that that Unchained or you, the borrower, has. They have access to all that same information, and it helps them understand what to do in these varying situations. Um, Realistically, though, it is a threat. It is possible that they turn out to be a bunch of crooks, and they're just in this to screw us over. Um, Realistically, though, I assign the probability of that statement to be so low that I don't almost worry about it. They're a great team. And realistically, the, the the thing I worry about much more is if we don't spread out custody, if we don't distribute keys, if we don't make a mesh out of authentication here, what's going to happen is we just hold way too much risk. Uh, if we, if Unchained had all those keys, now we have to be responsible for protecting all of them. If you hack Unchained and we're, we're you know, we don't have 10,000 employees and, um, you know, a massive security team and all this kind of stuff. We're reliant on this kind of collaboration to be able to do our job safely. So from where I sit, I look at the threat of, my partner in unchain in uh, at Citadel you know not obeying the rules and ruining their reputation that they've worked so hard to preserve and screwing off screwing um, over my company or our customers I just view that very unrealistically um, and in, and I view as much more realistic the threat that if we didn't collaborate that we would be it would be much easier to hack right I view that as the bigger problem and let's also not forget that it's not just Citadel that would have to act um, you know, untowardly here, they'd have to still collaborate with, let's say, our users. So we would need both our users and Citadel to both want to come after us. And then Citadel would have to agree, right? So just I think security ultimately boils down to real world relationships. And what's cool about cold storage is it boils it down to physical objects. And humans are good at securing things with relationships and physical objects. We are bad at securing information. And so this structure, I think, plays to the natural strengths of people instead of computers.
1: It's kind of interesting how you framed it that way. And I definitely see this kind of distribution of keys as being the future. And it kind of makes me think like, you know, when it comes for me planning my, old, my own cold storage and like thinking about like if something happened to me, how do I like make sure my parents can get this or my girlfriend or something like that? Like it, it kind of like... It's it's a daunting task. Do you have any kind of comments around like, you know, in that, you know, scenario that is very real for a lot of hodlers, like, you know, what should they be thinking about in terms of like a contingency plan on their funds?
2: I have almost nothing original to say on that topic other than it's important and you should do it, right? I think so many of us put off like wills and end of life planning because it's a somber and morose subject, right? It's not fun to think about, but it is important to think about, especially with cryptocurrency, it would be it might be impossible for your loved ones to get at your Bitcoin or your ETH or whatever else you're you're hanging on to if you were to pass. Like so many of us value operational and information security so greatly and we're cognizant if we're self custodying of the threats that we make it really, really hard to get at that stuff. And that's good, but it's bad when we're not around. And so I would say I would recommend um, there's a couple folks online, Jeff Vandrew, Pamela Morgan. They've written a lot about these kinds of subjects, inheritance, probate, retirement planning even. Um, I actually just read Pamela's book last week on crypto inheritance uh, planning. It's awesome. You should check it out. It's got worksheets, it's got all sorts of stuff in there on how you should be handling these problems. But again, I think realistically, there's still a lot of decision stress. Like you can look at Unchained's website, and you can sign up, and you can realize what's possible, and then you can go read Pamela's book, and you can realize what you need to be doing. But you're still left with count maybe 20, 30 small decisions that you need to make. Well, who should I pick to be this other signatory on my quorum? Well, which wallet should I use? Trezor and Trezor, Trezor and Ledger, how should I do it? Where should I put my wallet words? Um, uh, I have now have two sets if I'm doing multi sig, or at least two sets, right? Where do they go? Do they go in the same bank, different banks, same city, different cities? Like, how much do I have to think about to actually achieve this? And it starts to get very, very daunting very quickly. So I think the way out of that is to eliminate the decision stress as much as possible by coming up with nice plans, frameworks, um, checklists that customers can execute on, maybe in collaboration with companies like Unchained or maybe just on their own, and eliminating as many of of those decisions as possible. Of course, it's a trade-off, right? Because you can't just come out and say, here's the 10 steps every single human should take to better secure their cryptocurrency, because some of those steps aren't going to be applicable to everybody. So there's a trade-off between how broad you want your advice and your program to be versus how many decisions you're asking its users to make. And the more decisions they're having to make because you made your plan really broad and not specific or custom to them, the harder it is for them to make those decisions and the slower they are at onboarding or getting themselves into a better protected situation for themselves or for their loved ones. And so I think it really just boils down to putting out better resources that are a little bit more micro-targeted so like, you're a young person, you're chiefly concerned about your family, and you, 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 ha- you, have, you live in America, you have access to banking services and, and vaults, uh, bank vaults and things like this. Here's what you should do. Versus you are at a company, and you are concerned about treasury management, and you want to share with your you know, co-founder um, how to access. This is what you should do. Versus you're, a, you're an individual holder, but you live in a country that is not America. Maybe you live in China. Maybe you live in somewhere else. What should you do differently? Right? Really targeting um, these, this messaging to use cases and to geographies so that people have fewer decisions to make. I think that's the real key to solving this problem.
0: Drew, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and, and walking us through both your, your background and your discoveries in the blockchains and then also your, your cool cool new product startup offering. Um, and so if people want to find more about uh, about um, Unchained Capital, where should they go? And also, where can they find you?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, if you want to learn more about Unchained Capital, check us out on uh, the internet, unchained-capital.com, capital with an A. Um, We're on Twitter as well. You can find us at UnchainedCap. I'm on Twitter. I tweet about random Bitcoin things and crazy data stuff. Um, I'm D-H-R-U-V-B-A-N-S-A-R.
1: Drew, uh, I know you're going to be in SF next week. Why don't you tell people about your demo that you're putting on on Monday, as well as um, what else you're doing in the city?
2: Yeah, absolutely. We're going to be in San Francisco on Monday evening demoing our new collaborative custody vault product. If you want to come check it out, uh, show up Monday evening, 6.30 p.m. Um, Pacific time. It's The location is the Starfish Mission on Mission Street. If you want more details, just follow us on Twitter, and we'll be tweeting about it. So we'd love to see you guys there. you get a whole demo of how this product works, and you'll be able to check it out. For yourself
1: yep and you can meet me in person so if you're in the bay area
0: come down to starfish mission next monday all right everyone you can follow the podcast at pov crypto pod i'm at trustless state both on twitter and on medium christian yep ck underscore
1: snarks follow the show follow me give us five star reviews check out the vault see you later
0: If it's true, then you might as well tell a lie. If not, are real, then it's up for you to decide. Will you decide?